Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. How y'all doing? Trying to feel out the atmosphere. Trying to feel it out. Trying to check the temperature, you know, like when you go in a pool and you, you feel the water and maybe, maybe you put your toe in like Pastor Linda would. I'm ready to just dive in. How many of you are ready to dive back into David's life this morning? You ready to dive back in? How, are you sick of David yet? You sick of him? Anybody sick of David? You're so done. You're done with David. Well, we have a few more weeks. And my, my first announcement before we jump into today's story is this. Uh, in three weeks, if we can change that slide. In three weeks, we'll have, and I started this in the life of the church after our Jacob series uh, at the end of, of last year, well, this year, in the summer, I'm going by the, the school calendar. So on um, the date is 24, 17, it's the 9th, all right? The 9th, I believe that is, this, is that, am I right or is that Saturday? Did I get the date wrong? It's the 10th then? All right, so you're not going to be here on the 9th, so it's on the 10th on that weekend. Here's what we're asking for, as I did in the Jacob series. We're asking for people of any part, I mean, this is part eight today, any part from this series really ministered to you. You're seeing David's life in a new way. God is speaking to you about your life through his life. We would ask that you can either contact me and, and a lot of people, I really appreciate it. I'll get emails and texts during you know, the week. And, and it's very encouraging as a preacher when you know something that you actually preach is, is getting through. Uh, but we would love to have you come up in the same kind of format where you're not just listening to a traditional sermon and we feel as if we'd be remiss if we just move on. Can't spend a couple of months on a character in the Bible and then just say, hey, bye, see you later. So we're going to have a Sunday for reflection on his life, reflection on what we've looked at. Of course, we can't cover everything. If I covered every really big event, I've tried to winnow things down to, the, to really the large things that God is speaking to me about. Uh, in what I need to present to you. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Steve, when was the last time we had that song played in the church? Because it's still in my head. I know I'm supposed to preach to you right now, but I'm still feeling Sing Unto the Ancient of Days. How beautiful was that song? Sing unto the ancient of days. None can compare to... And you're like, you got to stop. Really, I love that. That's great when you bring some of that old music, music team. You bring some of that old music back, right, for us to really appreciate and enjoy. Want to thank them. We don't do it enough. Thank them for their faithfulness. I mean, they're sold out. They're here on Friday. I mean, a lot of them give up their Friday nights. Their Friday nights after a long work week, they're here practicing their craft, getting ready, and taking us into worship. You know what we need to do? Hey, listen, we need to take that kind of music. We got to take that into our lives now. You can turn your Toyota into a tabernacle. You understand me? I'm serious. You can take your car and turn it into a worship experience. You don't need anybody else. You don't need a band. It could just be you and God and you're just going at it. And people may be next to you on the highway and they think you're crazy. Maybe they think you're inebriated. It doesn't matter. You're high on Jesus as you're driving. So you take this as you go out into the work week. Now I'm officially ready to get into this. The title of today's message, this will be one of those messages. I mean, last week, listen, the, last week with Mephibosheth, for me personally, is going to be one of my favorite series, probably of the year. And of this series, without a doubt, top, I don't know, top two for me as the preacher. Just love the story. Any story that touches my heart is a story that I want to preach, I want to talk about. Here's another story. This one's a little more controversial, and the title of today's message is Bed, Bath, and Beyond. Did you like that? Did you get that text? Nobody, hey, I made that up on my own. I waited all week. I've been trying, all week. I'm trying to find a title for this message. Trying over, and, and then it just hit me. Bed, Bath, that's what, say, look at your neighbor next to you and say, we're going bed, bath, and beyond. That's where we're going today. And here's how I'm going to start this message. I want you to give me a little while. In a few minutes, it may get a little controversial. You may, this is one of those messages, maybe at the end, hey, listen, 
You may have some questions. That's fine. I don't know. I don't think you will, but you may. Uh, let me start with, here's a question. What do you think the Vatican would give for the Pope's name? Like, what? My starting question. What do you think the Vatican would give for the Pope's name? Well, there was a gentleman in 2005. His name is Roger Cadenhead. He sought an answer to that question. Why 2005? Because 2005 was the year that Pope John Paul II died. And this man, Cadenhead, a self-described domain hoarder, right? The internet, domains. He says he's a domain hoarder before the Vatican, the church, even realized they needed one. He took, he paid for, he bought www.popebenedict.com. 16 Roman numerals xv1.com and he bought some other ones kind of interesting before the church even knew that they would need this before this guy was even ever picked here was a man that said I guess this guy is going to be right this guy is going to be the next pope well what made the story so interesting was he said look I don't want money from the church he said I don't want to anger hundreds of millions of Catholics and he's a Catholic by the way and my grandmother He said, but I do want these things. Can I show you what he actually wanted? And this is quite comical. He said, I want one of those hats. Number one. Number two, a free stay at the Vatican Hotel. And then number three, though. Look at you can't make this up. Complete absolution. No questions asked for the third week of March 1987. What? Oh my gosh, I didn't, yes, probably, I didn't even think of that. What happened to Roger Cadenhead, who had no idea he would be in a sermon at City on a Hill Community Church, and we'd be talking about a week in his life in 1987, and it led me to think when I read the story, what about us? Is there a week in your life? Is there a month in your life? Is there a time period in your life that you would love to have expunged from the record? Some of you are laughing. Is there a time, really, let's be serious. Is there a time, a window? What if all of, if what if there was a huge box for every single one of us in here and it had a record of every single second of our lives. Let me ask you, what would you want edited from that? What would you want taken out of your life? Because I think if you're like me, there are some things that you would definitely want removed. And if you do feel that way this morning, you are in good company with Roger Cadenhead, with James Lecce, and I'm sure other people in here, but none other than King David. Wow. I don't know if there is a person in the Bible that has a more colossal collapse than King David. Oh, it is colossal. I have given you, and I told you, I've had people tell me, man, I'm really falling more and more in love with David. That's good. That's good. You're going to fall more in love with David than you have before, but not because of the good things that he does, because of the bad and ugly things that he does, and how he handles his sin, how he handles all of the tumultuous experiences, how he handles failure. He chooses to get up and get back in the race. He doesn't stay down on the ground. David! The bad and the ugly. David, a man after God's own heart. David, the one that we revere and the one that we venerate. King David had a colossal collapse. And the story, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to give you chapters 11 and 12 in 2 Samuel. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to really try, I've tried to be very careful and selective And the passages of scripture that I put up there, and I'm going to tell you some of the story, it would take us a couple of hours if I just went through the scripture and try. And I, some of you are like, man, that's what I want. I want you to sit up here. I could make this a Bible study in some ways. The beginning may be more of a little Bible study and trying to set the context because I'm going to do something that you probably never heard in a sermon before. I don't know. And I'm trying to talk to Pastor Linda about it. I've never preached this part of the story. I've preached a part of the story before. 
Not this part that I'm going to. I've kind of avoided this part before. And you know what I'm talking about. Well, it starts here. Now, before the collapse, we have to look at this. The wave of his success crests right about at the age he's about 50 years old at this time. Before I even get into this, let me just set the background. The King David is almost 50. He's been on the throne now for two decades. It's been, I mean, you look in the rear view mirror, it was a long time ago that he was a 13, 14 year old boy when we started out in this series and we see him and he's at Jesse's house and he's son number eight and the prophet Samuel came to his house. It's a long time ago when he is in the valley of Elah and he is fighting a giant by the name of Goliath. It's a long time ago before he is running from Saul. And it's a long time ago that he's in Adullam, he's in Engedi, and here is David. He has the crowds that love him. He has the adoration of all the people. Thousands of miles stretch out. That is his territory. He has never lost in a battle before. He is King David. Everybody loves and extols who he is and what he represents to the people. Now, with that as the background, we can roll into the text. And it says here at the beginning of chapter 11, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. But David remained in Jerusalem. Why is David remaining in Jerusalem? This is kind of like, it's akin to, do you know the summer? What do we equate the summer to? What do we say? What kind of season is it? It is, it's amazing. It's base, thank you, Chris. It's baseball season and it's beach season. All right, for those of you that hate baseball, it's also beach season, right? The springtime in antiquity, You have to understand, kings, you went out with your men and you fought with your men. Why the springtime? Think about it. It's pretty simple. This was the time that you could feed your army. The weather was going to be a little bit better. This was the time to strike. So here is a man that is sitting home in his bed. There's the first word for the sermon title. He's home in his bed when he should be out fighting with his troops. And I want you to see this. You have to see this. Do you remember when we looked at David and Goliath, that story, and David is in the valley of Elah? Do you remember that everybody else was standing up? You have his brothers who are standing. You have the other soldiers who are standing. You have the people that are standing. But there was a boy that is down on one knee in a brook in the valley of Elah, and he's looking for five smooth stones. He's never lower, and he's never stronger. Here, years later, years later, he is standing, and he is never weaker. Never weaker. And he looks at his palatial palace, the opulence of such, which the people around, they look at it, all of his servants and everybody else that lives in the kingdom. That's where King David lives. And King David has been through trials and he's been through tribulations. But here he is and he's standing and he can look out of the balcony of his palace and he can, he's, he's full, he's drunk with power of what he has. But listen, friends, he has become complacent rockaby king david in the palace go to sleep king david so the enemy can take you out here is the king who has everything and here he is falling asleep at the wheel. Complacency. You know what I call it now? This is a term, if I was to write on this, if I was just to take this series and just my interpretation of the life of David, you know what I would call this? Cruise control Christianity. Cruise control. It's my own term. You can use it if you want. Cruise control Christianity. 
We're on cruise control because life is just really good. And David is a fat cat sitting in the palace and life is really good. But you know what, David, in the words of Mick, the theologian Mick, Mickey from the movies, the Rocky movies, you lost the eye of the tiger, brother. You lost the eye of the tiger. Remember that, that the, the, the passion, remember the tenacity and the perseverance you had in the Valley of Elah when you took on the giant? Remember the tenacity that you had in Adullam and in Gedi? Do you remember the tenacity you had when you went out on the battlefield with your 30 mighty men? Do you remember that tenacity? David, where is it? David, you become complacent. David, wake up. I want to shake him. David, wake up. There's so much at stake. But he's asleep. Don't you wish sometimes the enemy would just take a vacation? wish that in December the enemy said, you know, I'm going to Disney World. I'm going with Megan Lecce to Disney World. <laughs> Don't you? Not me. Not me. Her. Not me. Don't you wish so seriously? Don't you wish sometimes the enemy just said, I'm going to take a vacation? Really? Seriously? But how many of us know? Sometimes we, hey, let me, I have to say this because Pastor Linda would say this. We blame too many things. The enemy is not, in every situation, we, you can go over here to this extreme that the enemy is the, the reason for everything that happens in our lives. That's not us. But a lot of the things that happen in life and a lot of the times when we put down our spiritual guard, that gives room for the enemy to try to jump in. That gives him room. He doesn't take an hour off, he and his minions. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't take a second off. He is trying, as Tabitha said before, he wants to take us out. And that's why he roams around, he prowls around like a roaring lion. And you know what about a roaring lion I was thinking about this week? You can hear a roaring lion. You can hear them. You can hear the enemy coming. And the enemy was coming at David, but he missed it. Friends, let me just ask you this morning. Let's make it applicable to our lives today. How are you? How am I? How are we spiritually complacent? I think it is a pandemic of epic proportion in the church today. Complacency. That we're just satisfied with how life is. We're satisfied coming to church and giving God our leftovers. We're satisfied with that. We give the world, we give everything else. We give our job, we give every, the things that we want to do. We give our time, we give our money to all these other things. And then it's kind of like, God, you know you're at the end of the list. Whatever I have left over, then I'm going to give that to you. And we become complacent. You know what complacency looks like? Maybe I'll drive it home a little bit more. Complacency is the mom that is running around with young kids. Or you're going to all different practices and running here and there, trying to put food on the table and all good things, things that you have to do. But your soul is shriveling up inside because you're not addressing it. It's the father that's going to work that is so successful at work and is so happy climbing the ladder of success at work, but he doesn't realize that he's drifting farther and farther away from his kids. Can I even bring it home to married couples? You know what it looks like too? You know what complacency looks like? It is married couples and you may have a nice house and people may think you have a great relationship, but maybe behind closed doors, you haven't had a meaningful conversation in months. Maybe it goes longer than months. Complacency. And the enemy comes in. He comes in. And he wants to take us out. And then we look at, I don't have time to spend. I have more time to spend. Pastor Linda talked about social media yesterday at the breakfast. I have more time to spend on social media than I do to get into the word. I have more time to be a voyeur and follow other people's lives than I do to actually get into the word of God that can give me what I need for my own life. Spiritual complacency. And it's rampant. Here is the king of Israel. And the first thing David says to us through this story is, do not be complacent like I was. Do not be complacent. Wherever that is, friend, wherever that is in our lives, we can't be complacent. 
We are, you know when you can be sedentary? Somebody, you say, oh, that person's sedentary. They don't, do, they don't really do much. What about being spiritually sedentary? I'm talking about there's more than just coming here. We say it all the time. It's like a broken record. I know you're sick of hearing it probably. But who else is going to tell you if we don't tell you? Who else is going to tell you the truth? Can you handle the truth? David's asking us that question. Can you handle the truth? Then you roll into verses 2 and 3. Then it happened one evening, evening, that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Put the brakes on there for a second. How many times in the Bible does it talk about somebody being beautiful? It does a couple of times. It talks about Rachel, how beautiful she was. Esther, she was beautiful too. When the Bible says you're hot, you're hot. Okay? You're pretty. We, honestly, God wanted us to know how beautiful Bathsheba was. It's impressive. Okay? So David, and, David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, I could, listen, I could do the whole rest of the sermon just right here. I'm going to, Josh, I'm going to do my best. Okay? Not to. Is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, this is loaded. Loaded. Is this not Bathsheba? Hmm. You want to tell you something kind of cool? Do you want to hear this? You ready for this? You sure? Lean in, lean in. Come on now. Lean in a little bit. When it says the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, you know what's so cool to me? I'm going to point to it. Those two were part of David's mighty men. You probably didn't know Uriah the Hittite, who was a foreigner, rose through the ranks and became one of David's boys. He was one of his mighty men. How crazy is that? I've always heard when you hear the story that it's kind of like Uriah the Hittite. Oh my gosh, this guy, this poor Uriah that David didn't know. No, 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 no. He was with him. I can't, listen, you, you, you look at the whole story. You have to see that this guy had to have been in the caves with him. He's been with him a long time. He has been sold out to who David is. And not only that, but her father, you look it up in other parts of scripture. I got to calm myself down. Her father was also one of David's mighty men. I'm, listen, I'm giving you the unedited story that you probably don't hear. You can go read it. Go listen to other preachers. I don't really care because I, I was appalled at some of the stuff I read and saw online about the story of Bathsheba. But I don't know everything. Don't hear me say, I don't know everything. But listen. I know enough to know I'm giving you the real story today. The real story of what happened. And here is this woman. Her name is Bathsheba. And there is David, friends. Let me show you. This is an artist's rendering. Don't you love this? There is the king in the middle of the night. When kings are supposed to be out fighting with their armies... There he is on his balcony. I want you to notice, you know why I love this artist's rendering of the picture? I want you to see that his palace and his balcony was higher than every other house or dwelling that his eyes could see, meaning he could see everything. They are not on the same level. But here is the king who has been spiritually complacent and he's let his guard down and he's lost the eye of the tiger and he's on the balcony and he's looking out. And he happens to notice Bathsheba. And here's another thing that's kind of cool. How brave, this is something we'd easily miss. How brave the attendant is that tells him, usually, and one commentator brought this to my attention, I thought it was kind of neat, usually you only, you talk about their descendants, you talk about a father, it's weird that he mentions that Uriah is the husband. What is the servant saying to him? Yo, Big D, yo, Big D, boom, Big D, she's married, hands off. I know you're the king, 
But no, 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 no. You can have Bathsheba, even though she's so pretty. Hands off. Trying to tell him, stay away. And yeah, yeah, she's beautiful. And then the text goes on, right? We go to verses four and five. Then David sent messengers and took her. (laughs) And took her. In Hebrew, that word means to take against one's will. To take. This is not a person that is going willingly. This is not a person that says, oh, yeah, sure, I want to go see the king right now. No, David, the king, sent somebody or sent a couple of people to get this woman that he saw. He took a look from his balcony and he noticed something that was so beautiful and he tried to look away, but he had to take a second look and then he knew in his heart it was wrong, but he said, I must have that. And David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child again, just loaded. Isn't it kind of funny too? And this may be cornball. I don't know. Do you ever notice it's kind of funny? Her name's Bathsheba and she's taking a bath. It's almost as if God has a sense of humor, right? It just hit me this week and I'm like, I'm laughing about it. Almost God's like, listen, I want you to remember her name. And the way to remember that her name is Bathsheba is that she was taking a bath. Some of you thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. I don't know. Let it be said here, this is not a Nicholas Sparks novel. I don't know how else to phrase it. This is not the notebook, Okay. This is not Titanic. Jack Rose, near for wherever you... This is not, no. This is not love at first sight. This is not they have instant chemistry and the sparks are flying, pun intended. That's not what's going on here in this story. You have to see that and you have to understand that right here from the start. She is taken against her will and what really upsets me What really upsets me is that there are so many people that say that Bathsheba is complicit in this sin. And you may think that. And all I'm asking is that you keep an open mind for the next few minutes. Because that may be something that you walked in here with. Because you know what? Her name has always been synonymous with shame. She is the adulteress. She is the one that took the king down. It's really her fault. What happened that fateful evening 3,000 years ago? It wasn't the king's fault. She was, she was dressed, she was dressed uh, provocatively. She was seductive. She wanted the king to know she was there. That's what we've heard. She's complicit. She's really the one that should get in trouble for what happened. Friends, there is no evidence to back up that assertion that this woman, Bathsheba, is in the wrong, really, in any way. In this situation. Can I show you what some scholars said? Can I just read you a few? One scholar, his name, I'll give you their names in case you want to write them down. You probably don't, but I'm just going to give them to you. Randall Bailey, he argued at some length that Bathsheba is a willing and equal partner. Huh, you may be a scholar. I don't know where you're finding that in the text. H.W. Herzog suggests a possible element of feminine flirtation. Okay? Lillian Klein speaks of Bathsheba's complicity in the events that transpired. And another scholar says the text implies that Bathsheba asked to be sent for and taken. Crazy. How come in the story, and we get to the end, I want you to remember this. How come God blamed David... How come God doesn't say anything about Bathsheba? How come when the guy named Nathan, who was the prophet, comes onto the scene, he doesn't go after the woman, he comes after the man? And how come David blames himself and never once blames this innocent woman? One scholar, you know what he says about verse 4? This is what he said a good interpretation is. A good translation would be better. David sent emissaries to kidnap Bathsheba, to kidnap her. She's kidnapped, friends. What about her bathing outside? Let me give you the historical context. Every single woman that was either lower or middle class in society, middle class, probably where she is, they didn't have running water inside their homes. So here is a woman that would have, just like all the other women, would have been taking a bath outside and other people could have seen. 
I'm sick of the picture that there is a woman and she knew that the king was going to get up in the middle of the night. She knew that. How did she know the king was going to get up in the middle of the night and come out and look at her and send for her? Didn't happen. And I know at this point some of you are real bored, but I have to, I have to set the record straight. It's impossible to go on in this story without... Can I tell you what I think the story looked like? This is what I think really happened. Give me something here. Here we go. This is how I see the story. I don't know why I'm moving this. I tell you to move that. And then I, I hear a, a knock at the door. Here is Bathsheba. If I was a detective, Bathsheba has just finished her bath. She has just put on her clothes. Her husband, Uriah is fighting in the army. One of David's mighty men has been out for a while. Her thoughts, her dreams, her heart is on the battlefield and where he is. And she's thinking about him. She goes to the door, startled. Who would be willing? Who is going to be calling on me this late at night? She opens up the door and it's one of King David's men. The king needs to see you. By the way, do you know how old the age difference probably is? Scholars believe he's about 50 years old at this point. How old do you think she is? How old? Joe Pinto is amazing. Not only can Joe Pinto fix anything in this building, Joe Pinto is a scholar. She's in her, she's in her early 20s. We don't know exactly, but she's in her early 20s. Joe, you never cease to amaze me, my man. So the, the, there she is. And she's called, and then the servant says, the king wants to see you. Now I ask you, what do you think? Put yourself in her shoes. Please, in every sermon, I'm trying to make you feel the, feel the environment of what it was like for these characters. So here I see a woman that is going. I see her heart is beating so fast, rapidly. I see her mind racing. What would the rational thought be for what Bathsheba is feeling and thinking as she is being escorted from her house to the palace? She's thinking, the king needs to see me because my husband has probably been killed in battle. My Uriah, my Uriah, what happened to him in battle? The last thing that is on Bathsheba's mind, the last thing that is on her mind is that the king wants to do something sexually with her. That is the last thing that she's thinking. And imagine as she walked in the door to the palace and she's kind of perplexed and she's a little bit bewildered and she's kind of curious and then eventually she's taken into the private chamber of the king. Why am I here? Why does the king want me in here? And then she realizes a couple of minutes later when David does what he wants to do against her will. King David, you want me to just skip over this part of the story and act as if it never happened? And look what the text says. She returned to her house. What was it like, friends? I'm sorry. I'm trying to like be really, I'm trying to give you a PG here. I don't want to get in trouble. But what was it like when everything was done and Bathsheba left the palace and she looks at the king? This is the king that she's grown up, but she's only in her 20s. She's heard about from her father and she's heard about from her grandfather. Can I give you another? Jack, here's another reason as to why we should know that, listen, nobody agreed with this in her family. Her grandfather was one of David's confidants and counselors. How come when we get into Absalom next week, tomorrow, next week is real ugly. This is ugly. Next week is, is even uglier. And you, I don't know, maybe it's not. It's, it's all ugly. And you look at it, how come he sided with Absalom? Somebody that was a close counselor of David sides with Absalom? It was her grandfather. Her grandfather, stop defending him or stop saying that she is complicit in this. She didn't do anything wrong. And then she goes home. I imagine that woman, what did she do when she went home? She took another bath. Can you imagine the guilt and the shame that she felt? Oh, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But imagine the guilt and the shame that she felt with being violated by the king. Violated. And then as the story goes, I got to speed it up. I got to keep you awake. I know. I told you I'm going to give you some of the context. And then right after this, what does David do? I'm not going to put the verses up. I'm just going to tell you. And some of you know this story. It's great. If you've never heard this before, 
David then says, she tells him, I'm pregnant. And she doesn't talk very much in this text. We don't see, we don't get many words from Bathsheba. She's pregnant. And what does David do? He concocts a plan. I know what I'll do. I'm going to bring her husband, Uriah. I'm going to bring him home. And I'm going to make sure that he goes to be with you. So this is like as, as Jerusalem turns. This is a soap opera. This is crazy. Who said the Bible is boring? You're boring. And, and he says, Uriah, but you have to go home with your wife. But what does Uriah do? He sleeps outside the palace. Don't you? I mean, I could have made the, you could make a whole sermon about Uriah. What about the faithfulness of this guy? This dude says, I'm not going to go home when my commander Joab and my comrades are out on the battlefield and they're fighting for you, King David. There's no way I'm going home to be with my wife. I want to go back out on the battlefield and be with my brethren. I want to go back out there. What did that feel like for King David? The shame and the guilt that he sees. What am I going to do? And he's racking his brain. He, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill Uriah. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to snuff out his life. Because I'm the king. And I'm going to act as if this never happened. And he, he takes a handwritten note. And he sends Uriah out. And he says, give this to Joab, who is his commander. And you know what the letter says? Put Uriah where the fiercest fighting is. Put him on the front lines like the Marines and back up and retreat from him and make sure he's dead. Joab doesn't, Joab doesn't, he doesn't do it exactly that way, but Uriah winds up dying. He gets killed in battle. And then we see, right, here is David and he thinks it's over. I dodged a bullet. I dodged a bullet. Look, she went home. She's as a child. But look, all's going to be well now. Her husband is killed. Everything is going to be all right. The angels are just going to file this away with other stories in the folder that says boys will just be boys. I dodged a bullet. It's all good. Nothing to worry about here. But you know what's kind of cool too? When you look at this, look who enters the story at the end of the chapter. Up to this point, friends, there has been no mention of God. He schemes, he lusts after Bathsheba, he gets Bathsheba, he gets what he wants. No mention. He schemes to kill Uriah, no mention of God. And then eventually, here is a character, God. He enters the pages of the story, and look what the text says. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. You bet she mourned for her husband, because she didn't want him to die. She's happily married. This is a man that she loves. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There he is, a character. There he is. We see him and David, he's, he's with Bathsheba and he's gonna, you're coming in now as my wife. You've mourned for a little while and there they are. They're picking out the colors in the nursery. What are we going to do? What are the colors going to be? What are the baby names going to be? One of the worst experiences of my life was sitting down at Phil's restaurant. Do you remember this? I was dragged out for dinner and it was a setup. Because we went out to dinner and it was all, she pulled out the biggest book I've ever seen in my life of baby names. And it wasn't like, hey, how was your week? Let's go over the baby names. And then I got drilled on names that I didn't like. No, I don't like that name. No, I don't like that name either. I don't like that name either. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Have you been there and you're doing it? Well, here's David and Bathsheba and they're picking out the names and they're picking out all the paint colors and things are starting to fade. And David thinks, man, whew, whew. I really dodged that one. Things are going to be okay now. Things are okay now. And God says, nope, David, I'm sorry. No, this is not over. And what does God do? Who does he, what, who does he send? He sends a guy. And this is a message I gave a couple of years ago on this character in the story, which I'm not doing today. And it's, he's the prophet. His name is Nathan. And so God sends in a prophet. And here's a picture. I, I want you to just, I want this picture burned in your head. Because here is the king who has all power, right? Drunk with power. And here comes the prophet and he comes in and I can't, it's too long, but he kind of disarms him. And I'm, I'm wondering this week, I'm going, what was it like for the prophet to have to go and confront 
the king, the one who could take your life. If he doesn't like what you do, he doesn't like what you say. What was it like for him? But in one of the most brilliant pieces of literature, not just in the Bible, on confrontation that you will find anywhere, he sets him up and he tells him this whole little story. And he tries to, he says, listen, I'm, I, I want you to feel sympathy. There's two characters and this one who's who experienced such injustice. And he tells him the whole story and David's getting heated. David's like, well, who, who is this person? Tell me that I'm going to take care. I'm, I'm going to take care of this situation. And then Nathan says, you are the man, David. It's you. God has this against you. God has anointed you. He made you king. He, is, he, is, he settled everything and you're the, the ruler of Judah and all of Israel. And if you wanted more territory, you wanted something else, he would have given that to you, David. Why have you done this in his sight? God speaking to the prophet and he rips into David. You know how long this was? This is a year after what he did. A year after God sends in the prophet. Do you realize, David, the mess that you've caused? But here's the best part. The prophet says, God forgives you, David. He forgives you. But the baby that you and Bathsheba had is going to die. Sorry, David. I still love you. You're a man after my own heart. I still love you. But there are consequences for your actions. And the baby that you had is not going to live. And look what David does. Look what David does. Now we go to chapter 12. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. You notice how the, the, the author wants you to know. This is Uriah's wife. Uriah, the guy that was fighting for you. Your boy. The guy that was in the cave with you. Who else knows? Maybe he saved your life at some point. He did lay down his life for you. That guy. Okay. He's dead. Out of the picture. Bore to David. And it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with him. (laughs) This is the guy that laid out a giant and he's now on the floor eating dirt for seven days. The king is on the ground. It's one thing if you're on the ground and you stay on the ground, but it's another thing to be knocked on the ground. It's another thing to have everything and then to lose it, to touch something and then not be able to taste it. There's a big difference between those two things. David has had everything and now he's on the ground and he's eating the dirt. He's on his belly and he's lost everything. And you know what's wild? Here's the best part of the sermon. Here's, I'm just telling you, here's my favorite part that all week I, I've been thinking about. He is the only man in scripture that we know of that cries over a baby. He is, let me say it again. He is the only man. We have seen Hannah cry over a baby. Seen Rachel cry over a baby. We have seen Mary, the mother of Jesus, cry over a baby. We have never seen a man cry over a baby. Here is this big man, the big king, is crying over the loss of a baby. Friends, do you see in the story? David is trying to save Something God is trying to kill. Let me say it again. David is trying to save something God is trying to kill. Can I ask us, and let's be honest this morning, this is one of my other points. If you meet with other people, you talk about sermons that we preach in here, this would be a question that you should ask somebody else. This would be a question that you can have lunch over. What are you trying to save that God is trying to kill. What in your... I'm preaching right now. You're, you're super quiet today, but that's the way it's supposed to be today. Now I know I'm preaching well because... I'm preaching well because you're this quiet. Because this story hits your heart like it hits my heart. What are you trying to save that he's trying to kill? Is it a character thing? Is it offense? 
Somebody said something about you. You were at the woman's breakfast yesterday and somebody passed by you and they didn't say hi to you, Eileen. They didn't look your way. I'm, not, I'm done with them. I'm done with them. Somebody said something about you. Is it anger? Is it resentment? Is it jealousy? And God is, if you're going one direction in life and God is saying, I'm going in a totally different direction. What about a relationship? Somebody may be in a relationship in here today. I'm not talking about a marriage. You may be dating. Maybe it's even a younger person and you're in a relationship with somebody and God is saying, I'm no longer in that relationship. I'm done with that relationship because I have something better for you. I'm trying to kill that which you're trying to save. Stop fighting me. We're on the same team. So I don't know. And listen, there are times too, Pastor Linda and I were talking about this during the week. There are times we're supposed to fight. You have to ask God, when are those times that you are supposed to fight for something that he says fight for? We see David, he's a fighter. He takes his sword out and he fights. Physically, spiritually, David fights. But there are other times in our lives where we have to give up certain things. We have to die to certain things. There's a cross. We have to die to ourselves. We want to save it, our reputation, our little world, what everyone thinks about us, people please it, whatever it may be. God says, you have to die to some of that stuff. I'm trying to kill that which you're trying to save. And here it is. Here's the, here's the best part. Can I show you? You know what Psalm he writes? There are two, but one, the most famous Psalm that King David writes after the events that transpired with Bathsheba. I'm only going to show you a little bit right here. Psalm 51.5. This gives me insight into why he is the only man to cry over a baby. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my, my sin, my mother conceived me. Why do you think there is big David, the king, and he is there crying over this baby and he's on the floor and his attendants and his servants don't know what to do with him. They've never seen him like this before. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because I think, this is my opinion, I think King David looked at that baby and saw himself. He saw his own life from when he was a kid. Do you remember the first part of this series? Do you remember? Some of you are like, you should, your head should be going, yeah, I get it. Do you remember the first part? He was son number eight. He's the one that's out in the field. He's the one that nobody cares about. He sees himself in this little baby. Born into a situation the baby should have never been born into. God, please have mercy on this baby. I'm giving you the real David. The real David. It's the real McCoy. And I think about this situation. Some music team, you could start to, I'm, I'm going to start to wrap up soon. But you think about this situation too, and I think of my own life. Did you ever notice, <clears throat> we work twice as hard for people that are like us. Did you ever notice that? We work twice as hard. As a teacher, I'll be honest with you. When I see kids sometimes and they remind me of myself, it seems like, and you try to treat everybody fairly, but there are certain kids, you look at them and you see yourself and you see your own life and you go to bat and you're energized. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You see someone that went through a situation that you, is going through one that you went through in your life and you're energized to give them your time. Do you realize David is fighting a battle, not out there. He's real good at wielding a sword and fighting battles out there. He's fighting the hardest battle of his life. It's the battle within. He's fighting himself. Fighting himself. He's looking at his situation and he's looking at his past. He's looking at everything that's going on and he's going, this is crazy. And sometimes, friends, our history determines the fierceness and the tenacity with which we handle situations before us. Sometimes our history, things that have happened in the past, and the fierceness that we show towards situations in the present has everything to do with what happened in the past. Everything. They're related. They're interconnected. 
And here they are. They try to raise him up. They try to raise him up. I'm going to make you stand for a few minutes. Is that all right, music team? I don't usually make you stand a few minutes. but so, Or you can just kneel over there. Sit, whatever you have to do. And then right here. I probably called you up too early today. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him. And he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When, Ch- when David saw that this servant... That his servants were whispering. David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Can't you understand and see these servants, why they're so afraid? Can't you see why the servants are afraid? Because they're thinking, if we tell the big bad king what happened to his son, he's going to unravel even more. They were afraid of what the outrage would be. They're afraid of what's going to happen. They're afraid and they don't want to tell him. But I want you to see, as we start to move towards a conclusion in the sermon, I want you to see, look at his reaction in verse 20, because nobody saw this coming. And in verse 20, it says, So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. What kind of reaction is this? Would you have expected that the king would act this way in this kind of situation? You would think that the king would go crazy. That's the normal reaction for a situation like this. The child is dead. He's not eating. He's fighting spiritually. He's praying, fasting time and time again. He's covered in shame. He's wrapped in rags of his own unrighteousness. He's covered. The child is dead and it's his fault. And he has hurt those people around him. Friends, here's what I'm trying to say. When you feel ashamed or you feel ashamed this morning about something that's happened in your life and maybe you didn't just hurt yourself, you hurt other people, that's when you need to come here. You need to come. We move this table over to the table of grace and you need to say, Lord, I'm clothing myself with your robe of righteousness and I'm taking these dirty rags of unrighteousness. I'm here to tell you and preach to you this morning that somebody in this room, there are people in this room, what God would say to you, it's time to get up, it's time to wash your face and it's time to change your clothes. It's time to put on a new robe. It's time to take that old robe off. It's time to move on because it's a new day and what you did in the past is in the past and it's now today, it's time to move on. David, put on a new robe. David, take off those old clothes. Friends, do we understand what we have to... If we don't take our guilt and shame to God, or our guilt, I should say, if we don't take our guilt to God, our guilt will ultimately take us to shame. That's Henry Cloud. If we don't take our guilt to God, our guilt is going to take us to shame. And you know what happens? Things happen in our lives. You know what we say? We don't say, I made a mistake. We hear the voices, you are a mistake. I didn't mess things up. You are a mess. And the enemy wants us to walk out of here, friends, with all of our baggage and all of our sin. And he wants us to keep carrying it. But here is David who washes his face and changes his clothes. And tells us, it's a new day. Stop walking around with all the sin. Stop walking around with all the baggage. You're not supposed to be carrying any of that. And he goes on in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. This is after Bathsheba. According to your abundant compassion. Oh man, he is full of grace And compassion. His love abounds to a thousand generations. A thousand. Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned. And done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Here is David showing us how we take off our robe and put on his robe. This is the exchange life. Our activity is not our identity. 
what you did is not greater than who he is in your life. Whatever you've done is not greater than who he is in your life. If he can forgive King David of his sins, come on, let's call it like it is. He raped somebody. I didn't use it the whole sermon, but I feel to say it. He raped Bathsheba. If God can blot out his transgressions, if God can say, David, you are a man after my own heart, then he says to every single person in here, you are a person after my own heart. I don't care what you did. Stop telling me about all the things that you've done over the course of your life. That week when I started this sermon, that guy's week, God said, I forgot it. I forgot it. Blot it out as white as snow. And you know what the best part of the story? I promise this is it. This is the conclusion. You know what the best part of the David and Bathsheba story is? Look, here's the best part. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and he made love to her. She gave birth to his son and they named him Solomon. Out of disgrace and shame and guilt comes Solomon who in many ways is a greater king than his father ever was. It's a way of God saying, I can bring good out of bad situations. He who started a good work in you, he who started a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And I think he did it for Bathsheba. I do. I think he did it for Bathsheba. She was innocent. I'm going to give you a son. And look at this. I just saw another picture online. And it just moved my heart. I see them right there. They've been through so much. So much turmoil. So much pain. But it brings me to Romans 8.28. The end of the day, friends. Just my, at the end of the day, all things work together for good. Not some things. David sins. David sins. All of it works together for good for those who are loved God and called, are called according to his purpose. David, you're called according to his purpose. You did this. Your sin is great. You murdered somebody. Committed adultery. You raped somebody. Stop sitting on your high horse and looking at other people and judging other people. Who are we to judge if God would say, he's a man after his own heart? Who am I to judge the person sitting next to me? You know what the problem with us is? I got to stop. I got to stop. The problem with us is we judge way too much. And we categorize everybody's sin. And we think we're better than other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. This guy raped somebody and he killed somebody. And God said, he's a man after my own heart. Stop judging everybody else. Look in the mirror. Deal with your own sin. But I'm thankful that you can walk out of this message today and, and say, you know what? My bags are gone. And drop all your baggage. Whatever baggage that you've walked into this place with, that you've been carrying, and you walk around and people look at you on Sunday mornings and you kind of hide it behind you. And everyone goes, hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Everything's good. Got my baggage, though. I don't want to show anybody my baggage. I'm going to show you my mask. I'm not going to let you see it. Can we bring the table over? I'm done. All righteousness was like filthy rags. But he, the Father, arrayed us in Christ. In Christ. Do you understand that we're a new creation today? You tell the devil who you are, whose you are. He is the lover of your soul. He is not judging you today. I want you to walk out of this place uplifted. The church, so much that we've done the harm. Thank you, guys. We've done so much harm. We've made people feel guilty. We've made people carry the shame. You don't have to walk out of here carrying all that shame. Lord, Father, I thank you that you were the ultimate David. Father, I thank you that you went to a cross and you said, I'm going to take all the shame. I'm going to take all the guilt. I'm going to take every sin that's ever been committed past present and future. Yeah, I'm going to take David's murder of, of Uriah. I'm going to take when he raped Bathsheba. I'm going to take even that stuff too. And I'm going to blot all of that out. I'm going to take your filthy rags of unrighteousness and I'm going to array you with myself. So when the father in heaven sees us, he sees Christ. He sees us clothed in Christ's 
righteousness. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the day, Lord. I thank you for the day as Steve and the music team, they sang that song earlier today. Oh, Lord, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess, and it may not look like that sometimes, but we know the end game. We know how the story ends, that one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that you are. Lord, Lord, and I thank you that we don't have to walk around with shame and guilt over things that we've done in our lives, that you cover a multitude, you cover everything. Friends, I'd ask you, as you come up to the table this morning, what are you carrying? What have you carried in this place today? I know it's a heavy sermon. This was a heavy sermon today. Probably the heaviest sermon. In, well, next week's heavy too. But it's a heavy sermon. I get it. It's a heavy sermon. Do business with God as you come up here today. Do business. Because I know for all of us, we all have some sort of shame and guilt over something that happened, something that we did, something that we said. And just leave it here. Leave it at the cross. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.